the joint. Mm. That is the joint. That is the joint. <laughs> Are you doing like a VC Voice Twin Peaks mashup? <laughs> that is the best cup of coffee. That's a, taking a sip of my coffee. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's the joint. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. Um, is that not good? No, that's fine. <laughs> it, you have to let me know. Like, why don't we have a light that says on air and then you turn it on because this joke is repetitive, but it's not because we do it on purpose. It's because I never know <laughs> because we don't have a blinking red light that says no. on air. No, 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 not yet. Not yet. Those things are expensive. Really? Yeah. <laughs> we'd never use it. We'd buy it. We'd never use it. Trust me. I've tried it before. We I'm, never used it. I'm turning it on right now. <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. Welcome to season 1.1. Yes. Oh, thank you so much, everybody who listened to season one. Uh, season 1.1, you don't need to listen to season one to get what's going on in this one. It would be helpful, though. Yeah, I would say that, you know, we're going to be referring uh, to a lot of stuff in season one. But if you haven't heard season one, uh, welcome. You will not be yes. lost. No, it's a rogue one. In exactly. a sense. <laughs> so, I mean, it is very helpful, but yeah. it, it is a standalone in its own way because it is in some ways a sequel from the 1976-77 punk series that we talked about. Exactly. So let's get into it. Now, perhaps the biggest conclusion that we came to after our season of punk was that the legacy of the genre went far beyond simple punk rock. While punk did in some ways spend years cannibalizing itself, and in some ways still does, it was also the match that lit a thousand further artistic fires. So on this series, we're going to explore the careers and lives of a group that formed in the New York hardcore scene, but soon evolved into a driving force in the two most creative and exciting genres of the 80s and 90s, hip-hop and so-called alternative rock. Now, these three dudes starting off in punk rock makes all the sense in the world, because while punk was kicking off in downtown Manhattan, hip hop was developing in the parks and clubs of the South Bronx, about 10 miles to the north, as well as Queens and Brooklyn. Right. A little spoken of piece of this history, however, is that these two scenes cross pollinated from time to time while they were developing. And part of the reason for this is that both came from similar places of no opportunities, no future and utter boredom. Really, the big difference between the two scenes when it comes to environment is that while downtown Manhattan was simply abandoned, the South Bronx was destroyed first by their city and then by their landlords. And then it was abandoned. It's like a three-step process. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they made sure to put the foot squarely on the fucking South Bronx. And if you want to know more about that, read the fucking Power Broker about Robert Moses. Robert fucking Moses. Robert fucking Moses, yes. one of the biggest devils of... American history. But the thing is, is that if you went to CBGB in the late 70s, you'd see that the punks were tagging up the walls of that venue, just like the hip hop kids were tagging subway cars. And while the frustrations felt by the two scenes didn't mirror each other, they did, if you'll excuse the pun, rhyme. I get it. <laughs> I, get, I get it. They did. And also the trains go from north to south and south to north. Yes. So it, it is a way of c c literally commuting. And then if it's hard on it. Of course. See, to the New Yorkers of the late 70s and early 80s, punk rock and hip-hop was local music that reflected the environments in which the people in each scene were just trying to survive. Which, of course, brings us to the band we're covering in this series. Even after they became one of the biggest bands in the world, they still always made sure to add the tag from New York anytime they introduced themselves. And there's a reason for that. 
But the thing about this group concerning the cross-pollination of both scenes is that when you look at their career as a whole, it's hard to say that they were just a hip-hop group or that they were just a rock band. But neither were they rap rock. <laughs> it sounds like a riddle of the Sphinx, <laughs> where you have to walk in a desert and then you like you know talk to like the the sand. Answer dude, me these questions three, and then you and you're like MCA, Ed <laughs> Rock, and Mike D, and like your wish is granted, and then it opens up, and I don't know what's there. Eternal life. <laughs> But really, this band was a cultural and musical phenomenon unto themselves, a band that built on the music they loved to create albums and songs that were original and groundbreaking. But as Carolina here pointed out to me, while this band certainly was influential, their story is more about how they were influenced and what they did after the impact, all while being good dudes with good hearts driven by love, determination, and most importantly, the desire to make good music. That's right. Just like how we said this was sort of a sequel. It's like, well, all the 10 bands we spoke about in the punk series, you know, went on to influence so many other people. And this is one of the main parts yeah. of that. Yeah, this this is, is why. This is how this happened. It's a consequence. <laughs> yes, this is one of the biggest consequences of the 77 punk scene. And what this band proved was that as long as you always do what you think is good and you always do it the hard way, and just so long as you've got the right crew to do it with, then you might be able to just fucking nail it on the level of the Beastie Boys. And I'm going to be, yes, I do the WAP. I'm always doing the WAP. I mean, I'm not as coordinated, but I, I do my best. Okay, I, I know you do. And that's why I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into the entire story of the Beastie Boys, let's acknowledge our sources. The biggest, of course, is Beastie Boys book, in which the surviving members told the entire history of the band. Or at least, 
their version. That's of right. The history of That's the band. right. I, I, I mean, you guys will find out. Everyone knows uh, that I'm a huge Beastie Boys fan. Yes. And I hate being lied to. <laughs> so what I had to do was contact a couple people. Mm-hmm. So uh, we actually have not only some great other books, uh, great books that we use as sources as like Beastie Boys, a musical biography by Jonathan Zwickle, The Skills to Pay the Bills, The Story of the Beastie Boys by Alan Light. Finding Joseph I, an oral history of HR from Bad Brains by Howie Abrams. And uh, of course, New York Hardcore, 1980 to 1990. That's a great book by Tony Rettman. Mm-hmm. And uh, BeastieMania.com has been incredibly helpful. Yes. As well as DoYouKnowHardcore.com. And I did have to speak to a few people to make sure that it was all, you know, it all made sense because <laughs> so many things didn't line up. Like Jeremy Shatton, a childhood friend of the Beastie Boys, he helped me out a lot with the details about the early years, which I'm so incredibly grateful for. Uh, please check out his blog. Uh, uh, an earful.blogspot.com, right? That's right. That's it's right. really good. And of course, Nick Martin, who was in even worse in the band, uh, and, and and Jack Rabbit, uh, obviously the founder and editor and amazing writer for uh, The Big Takeover. And and I spoke to them on Zoom and, and asked them some questions and they gave me the best response. I, honestly, I was very impressed. So thank you so much for letting helping us tell this story in a in a as well-rounded as we possibly could make it. Yeah, we really, we really did. appreciate it. Again, we're, we're dealing with fucking 40-year-old memories here. Yes. And, the, <laughs> and sometimes the Beastie Boys, when they're telling their stories, they go for the best story and not necessarily the truth. Which, you know what? I understand. Print the legend sometimes. Always print the legend, yes. But we're going to be doing the best possible job that we can in trying to get all of this shit as right as we possibly can. Because <laughs> yes. that's Carolina. That's all you, baby. I know. <laughs> It's true fun. (laughs) Now, one of the keys to understanding how the Beastie Boys evolved as musicians and as people is the way they introduced themselves all the way up to their last show. We're the Beastie Boys, and we're from New York. See, without the influence of New York City, the vibe, the attitude, and most importantly, the culture, the Beastie Boys simply would not have existed. Like, had they been from, say, the other big hip-hop market at the time. Say they'd been from Philadelphia, and they'd only heard punk and hip-hop records from afar. They just wouldn't have been the Beastie Boys. Now, everyone is obviously a product of their environment, but New York City shaped these three dudes in ways that cannot be overstated. And it's with New York City and Beastie Boy Michael Diamond, the guy right in the middle, yes, that we begin this story. Yes, Michael Diamond, or Mike D. Mike D. Mike D, that's right. He was born in 1965 in Manhattan, New York, the youngest of three boys. His parents, they were very successful art dealers Mm -hmm. in the successful art dealer world of the Upper West Side. I imagine that's how you have to be in the Upper West Side. You have to be successful if you want to be an art dealer. Yeah, I don't think you can be in the Upper West Side if you're not successful. I think successful is the most important so part So there's of no that. entry level. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. There, there's no like, you know, pro bono art dealers. How like, do I get in here? Uh, yeah, so Mike actually did grow up around the upper crust, like fancy artists and art historians, you know, coming and going all the time because of his parents. And even though he and his brothers did, they grew up very privileged, of course. His parents actually didn't. His mom came from a middle class area in the Bronx and she was a teacher while Mike's dad, he was a social worker before they made their successful living as su- successful art dealers. <laughs> I, I, I can't stop saying it. Successful, <laughs> they're successful art dealers. Yes. They're absolutely successful art dealers. <laughs> so obviously they're rich folk, right? Yeah, yeah. But they were also involved in doing what they loved. Like like uh, his parents, of course, encouraged Mike to follow whatever path he wanted to take. Although they were surprised it was going to be in music. Yeah. And so... Not at, the hardest one. Yeah. 
hardest one. And, uh, you know, after a little bit of cajoling, like, you know, at 10 years old, Mike finally got to take drum lessons after school. And not long later for Christmas, he finally got his own drum set. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And his parents, you know, we'll talk about with the other Beastie Boys as well. Like they were very liberal parents and very permissive parents. Yeah. And they allowed these kids to really find their own path. And that's key. To the Beastie Boys. That's key to these guys finding what it is that really makes their artistic grunt, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Now, as far as music influences went, Mike Diamond was certainly into the same bands as everyone else's age, like the Beatles and Kiss. Fucking everybody was into that. But the band that really got Mike heading down the road to punk was The Clash. And I think this song right here... It's got some beastie in it. Yeah, okay. Maybe the beastie's got a little bit of clash. Well, let's listen. London's burning! London's burning! Speaking of punk and hip-hop, it was actually The Clash who had Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five open for them uh, in New York City when a greedy promoter oversold a Clash show. Of course, it did not work out. It did not work out, unfortunately. (laughs) No, the fans of The Clash were not appreciative of Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five, but The Clash uh, absolutely went on stage and fucking chastised everyone like, you're a bunch of fucking idiots. These guys are amazing. That's right. I mean, that's part of how we got the uh, (laughs) magnificent... Magnificent Seven! Thank you. <laughs> that, I can't say it normally. You're right. I have to, Magnificent Seven! Uh, that's the only way I can do it. But we'll talk oh, about like the, that. Like the King's Speech, you have to fucking sing it? Yeah. Yeah. That's ass fuck. We'll talk about it in the next episode, though. Now, while Mike Diamond was attending his hippie school with all the other children of permissive parents, he met another kid that was into punk named Jeremy Shatton. And Shatton introduced Mike to a kid who played a large role in the early days of the Beasties. That kid's name was John Barry. Yeah, John Barry. You know, you ever have a friend that their first and last name just go together and that's what you call them for the rest of their lives? John Barry. John Barry. Yeah. Yes, he's John Barry forever. I had a friend in college that refused to call me anything but Marcus Parks. He had to call me by the you full fucking name. that guy to him. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And in this story, John Barry. John Barry. Was this guy. Because this is around eighth grade when they meet John Barry, you know. And John Barry had this like classic British punk look because, you know, he had this pale Irish complexion. He had this skinny frame and orange spiky hair. 
hair. So naturally, like Mike D and, and Jeremy gravitated towards that. I was like, this guy looks cool. Yeah. And he came from Connecticut and he moved to the Upper West Side and not the fancy Upper West Side that mm -hmm. we we're talking about with Mike D's apartment. Like, no, he and his dad actually moved to this old wooden building built from like the 1800s. Oh, this is the Upper, Upper, Upper West Side. It's 100th Street and Broadway. Yeah, Upper, Upper, Upper West Side. Yeah. So, yeah. So anything, I guess back then, anything over 96th Street was Upper, Upper West Side, which is kind of to the Upper West Siders. To them, it kind of seems like, oh, I don't, just don't go up past 96th Street. I don't yeah. go up past 125th Street, which is crazy because you're missing out on a lot. You really are. Yes. No, it's fucking great up there. But yeah, yeah it's like, it's right in between. It's like kind of the demilitarized zone between the Upper West Side and Harlem. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't make sense. It's what, the best pizza place ever is on 100th Street. All right. So that's where Mike D would hang out in the Upper Upper West Side. Uh, and they're like about 13, 14 years old. I mean, they had free reign of whatever they wanted to do. Hang out on the roof. Watch people get mugged. Watch <laughs> someone throw a sink out the window from across the street. And the final act of the cops showing up for the third time that day while salsa music is blaring from the Cuban Chinese restaurant below John Barry's apartment. So this is what's happening. This is what they're being exposed to. This is what they're sitting and watching and, and listening to. Their radios coming out of every window. This is the three of them. Mike D, Jeremy Shatton, and John Barry. They're best friends and they're hanging out just being exposed to the shenanigans of the city. Yeah, and this is a time, you know, where it's not just punk and hip hop they're kicking off in New York in the late seventies. Salsa is that, 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 <laughs> You're talking about my people's. Yeah, I'm talking about your people's. Yeah. I mean, salsa was going through a renaissance yes. at this time. In fact, like one of the legends of this time, uh Johnny Pacheco just died a couple of weeks ago. Like I mean, this is like salsa is reaching a renaissance. New York City in general is just going through a huge creative renaissance. Graffiti is also fucking kicking off. It's a museum. Yeah. <laughs> they're starting to package it and put it in museums around this time. Yeah, they're like Fab Five Freddy and Lee Quinones. They're fucking, they're painting Campbell soup cans on the side of subway cars. <laughs> like, they're beautiful works of art. You know, New York City is a creative fucking powerhouse at this time. New York City is also a fucking hellhole. Like, it's a highly dangerous <laughs> place to live. But this is where, like, creativity is everywhere. And these kids are right in the middle of it. And they're taking in all this as what? 13-year-olds, 12-year-olds, like this shit is shaping them every yeah, single exactly. day. Exactly. This is their normal. Yeah, this is and the, yeah, this is just what they're hearing going down the fucking street. Now, all three of the Beastie Boys grew up in the New York City scene of the late 70s and early 80s. But if you'll recall from our Ramon series, the original 77 punk scene was a surprisingly short-lived to-do. It was a short-lived to-do, <laughs> like a picnic in the park yeah, gets interrupted a, by a rainstorm. Yeah, you know, it was a bit of a to-do, you know, like we had, a, we were going to go out and have a stay and those People have been thing. talking about it for 40 years. <laughs> it's not a little to-do. It's not a blip. It's a bit of a to-do, you know, you know, you know, it goes. <laughs> See, by the time the Beastie Boys started going to shows as young teenagers, the scene was starting to move away from the original sound, more rooted in the New York Dolls, the fucking rock and roll sound, into something that took the louder, faster, shorter style of the Ramones to the next level. That style was New York Hardcore. I'm a sure of my side, it's all the damn, but why am I? 
That was the whole song. That was the whole song. 48, <laughs> 48 seconds of agnostic front. <laughs> Can't believe it. Parkour. Yes. It's very fast. It's very abrupt. And it's over before you know it. Fuck you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So to explain, like, how did we get here? Yes. From, from I want to be your boyfriend. <laughs> you know, how did we get here? Yeah. And so the first wave of the New York City punk scene was pretty much over, like what we were talking about over by 1979, like bands like Television, Patti Smith Group, The Dictators, they had all broken up by then. And the Ramones, they played their last CBGB show in 1979. And they were in L.A. doing their album in of the century with Phil Spector. Duck! <laughs> Bulletproof vests in the studio. And the Heartbreakers, you know, they were still around New York. They were still playing, but they hardly played because they were always on heroin. Yeah, I mean, there were some cool shows going on here. Like, you know, Gang War was still mm-hmm. playing shows. But you also, when you showed up to see these shows, uh, you never knew what the fuck you were going to get. You never knew whether you were going to get an amazing show where Wayne Kramer's fucking screaming and going crazy, or you were going to get Sid Vicious barely conscious on stage being fed coffee by Nancy Spungen just so he can fucking stay awake for 30 minutes. Yes, exactly. You, don't, you just don't no. fucking know. That punk was dying. Actually, punk died. Sid Vicious died <laughs> <laughs> downtown Manhattan in 1979. Yeah. So, the, yes. And also the more successful bands were taking off and just and leaving like like Blondie and Talking Heads. They'd moved on already. So there wasn't much of a local scene like there once was. You know, all the original punks were getting older, moving on or dying of drugs. And but that lull between the first wave of punk and then the uh you know the hard the new york hardcore scene that there was a little bit of a second wave of punk you mm-hmm. know it, it, so they were younger with more energy and and they weren't hooked on drugs yeah that was the main thing because in fact they saw like what hard drugs were doing to people like richard hill and and johnny thunders and and they would usually stay away from it and would just start bands just for the sake of the music but this time louder and harder and more intense than the previous generation mm-hmm yep Loud Fast Rules. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's my new favorite song. Now, speaking of Loud Fast Rules, the band that helped kickstart this scene back in 1978 was not necessarily what we would think of considering how aggressive New York hardcore became. Instead, it was a female-led punk band with an 11-year-old drummer called The Stimulators. <laughs> Fast rolls. Yeah. Stimulators. 
was, yeah, God, I wish there was a better recording. Uh, well, you, you, can find, you can find their band camp. They have a really yeah. good live album, too. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's really fun. It, it's my favorite new thing now. The simulators are my favorite new thing. Yeah, they're fucking great. But, you know, unfortunately, they're, you know, kind of like the screamers, you know, just never got into the studio. Um, ne- kind of, sort of got kinda, into the yeah. Kind of, yeah, sort of no, got. They, they recorded they, some things on 171, eh? Yeah, they recorded some things, but not like, a, you know, the studio studio. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. It's a, yeah, there, there was, there's like not a, a clear, a super clear stimulators recording out there. But by all accounts, they were the fucking best live band of 1978. Yeah. No, I I, I agree. And I wasn't even alive. Uh, <laughs> but from what I've heard and who yeah. I've talked to. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the stimulators, they started with a young woman named Denise Mercedes, who went to CBGB's to see the dam play in 1977. And the minute the dam started playing, like, her life changed forever. She, Denise, she knew she wanted to pursue punk music from then on. So after her set, she introduced herself to the drummer of the damned, you know, Rat Scabies, mm-hmm. and they became fast friends. So fast that Rat Scabies even invited her to England to play in a band with her. But that didn't last very long. It just it, She was there for maybe a few months. And so Denise came back to New York City uh, from England, and she immediately started her own band, yeah. The Stimulators. And so she's already great at guitar. So she got her friend Ann Gustafson to play bass, and now she needs a singer. Yeah. So Denise walks into Max's Kansas City one night and goes to the cutest guy there and asks him, hey, do you sing? And the guy says, no. And she's like, well, do you wanna? I have a band. I don't know why I'm pointing back. Like, I have a band <laughs> in an alley back here. And there's candy and puppies. And he said, <laughs> and the guy said, yeah, okay, sure, why not? And that guy was Patrick Mack. And he never done anything so crazy like this before, like join a band and, or be even a front man for that band. Yeah. And he just went for it. <laughs> just fucking yeah. Which is awesome. And actually it worked out perfectly because he was a great front man, just being very flamboyant with great performance antics because uh, mm-hmm. he he really loved and admired uh, Iggy Pop. So Denise also added her nephew Harley Flanagan to the lineup in 1979 when she was stuck without a drummer for a gig out of town. I think they were supposed to go to Philadelphia. They needed a drummer. So she's like, okay, uh, I'll get my nephew Harley to do it. Yes, I know he's 11, <laughs> but he's going to be perfect for he's it. He's going to be great. Yeah, he was like 11, 12 years old around this point. And he was a great drummer. Harley Flanagan was a great drummer at 11 years old. He, he really was. If you listen to that, uh, the Stimulator show from North Carolina from like 1981, just a couple of years later, he's fucking amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> He'd been playing since he was seven, you know, because he was raised by like a hippie mother, Denise's sister, who took him all across Europe and introduced him to musicians and writers and you know, he lived a life. He hung out with Allen Ginsberg and Andy Warhol. He's like in the first grade. Yeah. And so like he's no stranger to the art scene. So as a band, the stimulators were two women on guitar and bass, an 11 year old drummer and a flamboyant gay frontman emulating Iggy Pop with fun stage antics. And then later and left the band and Nick Martin joined and they played together. They've actually played together since many times, yeah. even in the 2000s, which is great. Yeah. And of course, Harley Flanagan later went on to be uh, one of the co-founders of the Cro-Mags, yes. which is one of the biggest fucking New York hardcore bands that ever existed. That's right. This is where it starts. <laughs> and the stimulators at that time, yes, they, like we said, they were the most exciting band to see the, at that time. They, you know, being younger and energetic and not full of drugs. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that's why the guys who are soon to be Beastie Boys would rarely miss a show. Yeah. You know, they were huge fans. Anthony Bourdain was a big fan of the stimulators. <laughs> Glenn Danzig from the Misfits, he would come from, you know, his hometown in New Jersey and he would go see the stimulators in the city all the time. He even said the first time he saw the stimulators, he thought they were amazing, but he's also like, who's the drummer? Is that a little person? Or are you guys doing a gimmick? Oh, that's a child. <laughs> he had to stand up to play. Harley, yeah. 
because <laughs> he couldn't reach the pedals of his feet. It was really, it's really adorable. I mean, the, the stimulators, they're really one of the unsung heroes of New York City music. You know, you take the stimulators out of the scene and a lot changes. You know, shit just doesn't work out the way that it does without the stimulators. That's right. But there were also plenty of other great bands at this time. There was the Undead, which yes. featured former misfit Bobby Steele. There was Adrenaline OD. They were like the funny band in the scene. <laughs> and there was the Nihilistics, whom everyone fucking hated. Well, they were kind of the funny guys. Yeah. <laughs> they were the funny guys, and some people didn't find it very funny. No, no, not at all. <laughs> My personal favorite of the second wave, though, was The Mad. Ooh. Oh, I love The Mad. Yeah. Oh, we hate music. <laughs> we hate music. You should see the the cover to the compilation that that song is on. It's called We Love Noise. It's got the lead singer on the cover naked shitting himself <laughs> out of his own ass while pointing to another asshole that's shaped like the fucking Japanese flag. It's <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's art. It, it makes you think. It's art. It very really does make you think. <laughs> well, The Mad, fronted by Japanese immigrant Screaming Mad George, was among the most theatrical of the second wave of New York City punk bands. The reason behind this was that Mad George was a special effects genius mm. who would perform gory ritual faux sacrifices with a blood-spewing prosthetic penis during shows. That was just one of the stuff yes. he do. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that was the fun part about the Mad, They're the performance art, you know? Like, they used to show disgusting, like, really disgusting movies before they go on stage. Like a film of a guy sitting down in a field, taking out a knife and ripping his stomach open and grabbing his guts and pulling them out and then he'd take out a spoon and flick his eye out and put the eye on the spoon and, and, then, and then look into the camera. They would show these movies before every single gig and they would gross people out. Actually one time and this is a story that Jack Rabbit told me one time Johnny Thunders was sitting there in Max's Kansas City because people would used to sit at the mad shows because it was just a lot of performance mm -hmm. and that he started getting all green and queasy because he's a heroin addict and he's seen this guy's eye come out of his socket so he leaned over and just threw up all over the floor and the audience started laughing like ah! because it was really funny and then he sat back down and kept watching the show <laughs> made Johnny Thunders puke that's amazing put that on the DVD <laughs> and these were all movies that he made correct yeah he was a film student right yeah Screaming Mad George went on to become one of the great special effects gore artists of the 80s Screaming Mad George 
did the fucking Roach Motel scene in Nightmare on Elm Street 4. It's arguably the greatest Freddy kill of them all. Who's arguing? <laughs> You're right. It's the best Freddy kill. <laughs> no, it's the no, Screaming Mad George is a fucking, I mean, he is a genius. Even outside of his music, like his special effects work is so influential and so just... The uh, <laughs> <laughs> Matt also featured fleeting cramps member Julie Grindsnatch, and the second bassist killed himself by jumping out of a window after he replaced the first bassist, who was a mysterious man named Rick, who once purposefully stabbed himself on stage. They were the most fucking insane <laughs> band out there. So, do you want to join us or what? <laughs> but The Mad was only one band at the time doing cool shit. But what was interesting is that like the Ramones, a lot of the early New York hardcore bands came out of Queens. Queens, baby. There was Reagan Youth out of Rigo Park and out of Astoria. Yeah. One of the best crowd. Get up, throw up, throw up, do it right now. Don't let go. We should be gay. What are they? Find the floor. Run with it. Grab it. What's this is your last chance. This is it. That's all you got. But concerning this early scene in the Beastie Boys, it was at a stimulator show that future Beastie Boy Mike Diamond, aka Mike D, met the first drummer for the band. That girl's name was Kate Schellenbach. That's right, Kate Schellenbach, born and raised in downtown Manhattan. And as a kid, she uh, grew up listening to, you know, a lot of the favorites, The Clash and Blondie. She loved Blondie. Mm -hmm. And she found out bands like Blondie were from New York City and would play at local places like CBGB's in Max's Kansas City, which were just blocks away from our house. Yeah, I mean, when you're listening to this series, like imagine New York City like a fucking GTA 5 map. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's, everything is so close to each other. It's ridiculously close to each other. Yeah. And like Kate Chellenbach, she's the cool one. Yeah. Out of the, out of the, like, the original cool. out of the original lineup, like Kate Schellenbach is like she knows about all the coolest shit. She knows about it before everybody else. Like she's fucking she's she's the cool one. Yeah, absolutely. And she also started very young. Like one night, Kate was about 13 years old when she went to CBGB's with her friends, like at 13 years old, which is amazing. And so she went there just to check out a band called Student Teachers. And there were this uh post-punk pop band who were like maybe a few years older than Kate. And in their band, they had a girl bassist and a girl drummer, which immediately impressed Kate. Like, she didn't realize that there could be room for a teenage girl in punk music until then. And that's when it all clicked for her. She was going to pursue music and punk. 
And so she got a hold of some drums, thanks to Kate's mom's friend. Mm -hmm. Her mom's friend was traveling for a year and said, hey, can I leave my drum set with you guys for a year? And Kate said, yeah, can I practice on them while you're gone? And they're like, yeah, of course. So she's practicing already at 13 years old. And also going to the shows, picking up tips and techniques while like checking out what the drummer would do at CBGB's. Because back then, back in the early 80s, the drinking age was 18. So a lot of times, much younger people would be able to sneak in or they'd have matinees, of course, at all Mm -hmm. ages, matinees and everything. And they were able to be exposed to all this, like all this art, all this great stuff. And it was at one of those shows, a stimulator show, where uh, Kate met Mike D and John Barry, along with her bag ladies friends. Yes. Or or, uh, some people call them the the moppy scuds. Uh, The mopey scuds. (laughs) Oh, the mopey. Moppy scuds at that. I Mop, like moppy moppy. moppy. <laughs> no. Is it with two P's or P E? Two P's. All right, that's moppy scuds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Moppy scuds. Yeah. They're not a girl group. They're just a group. A girl. Yes, they're a girl group, but they weren't a band. They were just a group of girls. Or <laughs> explain that. More of a loose gang. Yeah, a loose gang who yeah. hung out and who liked to dress up. Uh, like a click. Were, yeah, a click. They were yeah. fans of the slits, and so they loved dressing up in thrift store clothing and just a bunch of uh, you know crazy ratty outfits, but just like for fun, purposely done like jeans and dresses over it and scarves at every place possible mm-hmm. it was cool yeah i was walking around like a bunch of steven tyler's yeah <laughs> i think i've done that too and i'm not ashamed to admit it but before the first iteration of the beastie boys even got together future beastie boy guitarist john barry who you just mentioned was already in a band called even worse with drummer jack rabbit who had just started the legendary fanzine The Big Takeover, which is still putting out issues. Yep. He's working on issue 88 right now. Right now as we speak. John Barry had actually joined Even Worse in the middle of a show during an outdoor gig at Tompkins Square Park, which at this time was colloquially named Needle Park because of how common heroin use was within its confines. This is Alphabet City during the bad years. Yeah. At that Tompkins Square show, though, The lead singer of Even Worse didn't bother to show up, but the band decided to go on anyway. So after going on stage and plugging in, they scanned the crowd for someone who looked like they could be a singer. And from what Jack Rabbit told us, John Barry looked like a younger Johnny Rotten. So bassist Nick Martin asked Barry to come on stage, be their singer. And he said, yeah, okay, fuck it. Okay, yeah, cool. (laughs) Yeah. And thereafter, he was the singer for Even Worse. Eventually, though, Nick Martin left Even Worse to play bass for the Stimulators, and John Barry, wanting to focus on guitar, left Even Worse as well and joined the band that would effectively become the Beastie Boys. They were called the Young Aborigines. Yeah, the Young Aborigines. As you said, it started with Mike D on drums, John Barry on guitar, Jeremy Shatton on bass. And this was an all-instrumental band, like very much like a jam band. Like they would meet up after school and just jam, just hang. I keep saying jam all the time. Just jam, they jam, they just jam. (laughs) (laughs) And once once they met Kate, you know, they invited her to join in and play percussion, like the conga drums or or whatever was laying around. Maybe Mike had, Mike D had some extra drums laying around. So she'd play whatever and hang out and, also jam together uh, in John Barry's apartment. That is the birth of the Beastie Boys. That is where it was labored out with all the gross sliminess yes. outside. Yes, the 110th Street, the vagina of New York. No, it's it's more like the, the womb. The womb, okay. <laughs> Through the canal. But yeah, th- this is up on 110th Street. This is in John Barry's dad's 100 place. Street. 100 Street. This is on a, a, you know, 110th Street. That's a song. Uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah. On 100th Street, this is at John Barry's place that, you know, the the Beastie Boys, the first bubblings, you know, are starting to to Mm -hmm. form. 
The vagina. <laughs> you keep saying vagina. <laughs> it's a word I enjoy. But even though New York City punk was transitioning out of the 77 style into something even more brutal and raw, bands in other parts of the country were solidifying the overall hardcore sound, and the future Beastie Boys were paying attention. Specifically, there were two bands that eventually brought the final lineup of the Beastie Boys together through a shared love of hardcore punk. The first band out of California released their debut EP, Nervous Breakdown, in 1979. That band was Black Flag. Out of Washington, D.C. would end up playing a huge role in the New York City hardcore scene, and they would basically be responsible for giving the second wave of New York punk a direction, for better or worse. That band was Bad Brains, who blew every young punk's mind with their first single, Pay to Come. <laughs> So fast. They're so good. <laughs> They're fast and so good. <laughs> and so, after hearing both the first Black Flag EP and the first Bad Brain single, Mike Diamond and John Barry discovered through an ad in the back pages of the Villa's Voice that Bad Brains were playing a show in New York City. 
So says Mike. <laughs> so says Mike. So says Mike. I guess we should probably print the legend, the official Beastie Boy story on how one beastie met another beastie. Yeah. Right? Shall we? Shall we? That's shall. Let's okay. do it. Let's do it. So as you said, Mike D listening to Pay to Come was a turning point in his life. Like he loved it. Spending hours listening to it and dancing around in his room, that kind of business. So he and John Barry headed out to the Botany Talk House, which was a venue on 28th Street, to go see his favorite new punk band, Bad Braids. Bad Braids. And remember, they're what, 14? They're about 1450. 1450. Yes. Yeah. So they walk into the Bad Brains show and there's maybe over a dozen people there. And out of that dozen or so, there's a skinny looking guy with a small head, <laughs> super short buzzed hair, wearing black combat boots and a black trench coat with homemade buttons on them. And with this pissed off look on his face that could have made him super tough, but he was only 16 years old. Mm -hmm. And that kid was Adam Yauk. MCA. That's right. Also known as MCA. <laughs> the funniest, most talented, kind-hearted person we're ever going to talk about. Oh, of course. No, he's a saint. Yes. Saint MCA. Might <laughs> so, as well fucking call him. We're going to canonize him very, very soon. <laughs> so Adam Yauk, of course, is also a born New Yorker. He was born in 1964 in Brooklyn Heights to Noel and Francis Yauk, an architect and a public school administrator, respectively. And he was raised an only child. No brothers, no sisters, uh, which kind of could explain Adam's fascination with taking things apart, like mm. electronic appliances and finding out how they work or, or being, you know, because being alone all the time can sometimes do that. You know, you. Yeah. you come up with fun projects for yourself. I had a very lonely childhood and I did that constantly. You have brothers. Uh, yeah, but they were uh, They were older. Yeah, they were much older. they were much older and they didn't want anything to do with me. <laughs> so Adam, Adam's really alone. Yeah. <laughs> and he would like do things like he would take apart like the flash bulb and a camera and make a little bomb out of it and he'd take apart fireworks, reassemble them, get a, like a remote detonator and like just blow things up for fun. And it was like oh, like a fence or something like that. And his <laughs> yeah, parents yeah. would come out like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> he did actually blow up his fence in his backyard in Brooklyn. He, he knew how to do that. Yeah. He was very handy. He had many technical skills ever since he was a kid. And even though he had that serious, like that pissed off look face, like he was also the funniest guy in the group. He really was. Yes. And, and Adam Yauk was the guy that uh, he knew about shit before anybody else knew about it. Like he was always, he was the most forward thinking of the Beastie Boys. The reason why the Beastie Boys were so ahead of their time always was because of Adam Yauk. Yes. Like the reason why they were a cultural force was Adam Yauk. Yeah. Because he did know about these things. And he did have this amazing understated sense of humor. Yeah. That was also a really fun part of like what became the Beastie Boys. So, like, him playing pranks on people. Yeah. You know, things like that. Like covering a toilet seat with Vaseline so your butt slips off. But <laughs> oh, that was a good one. And also being really into hardcore right when hardcore was just emerging. Because he's one of the first people who know about this too. Like he loved Minor Threat and Black Flag. Uh, he, he was a fan for life really. But he was also the biggest fan of... Of bad brains who he had seen several times and this show being one of them and so right before oh yes we're at the bad brains show yes we're at the bad brains brain show yep. so, so right before the bad brains show starts john barry goes up to adam adam yauk and starts talking to him and he's like hey didn't i meet you at tier three that show that one night oh yeah yeah i think that's where we met actually <laughs> okay, well, i think that might actually be the truth that <laughs> actually is the truth and this has never really happened <laughs> 
Anyway, we're here at this Bad Brain show. Yeah. yeah, yes, exactly. That's what Mike is telling me too. And so while John Barry's talking to Adam, Mike is like hanging back because as Mike described it, he was way too shy to approach anyone. And he didn't know how to start a conversation with someone, especially someone who looks so damn cool like Adam Yauch. Yeah, and he's like two years older than them. That's like, right. He's and that's the older like 10 kid. years and teenage years. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a whole lifetime. It really is. But they were also, the funny thing is, is that they were also like the only kids at the show. Like, Everyone else around them was in their 20s and 30s. And they're just like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> this is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> but then soon the band comes on and everyone kind of goes back to their corners. And together they watch this amazing explosive bad brain set. You know, the music, the energy was just so loud and so fast. Mike called it ear shattering. It was ear shatteringly loud and genuinely invigorating. You know, you're watching bad brains in a dive bar. Like th this show is practically a private show. And I, I can just imagine, like imagine like HR moving and throwing himself around, doing backflips right in Fuck. your face. Like, and John Joseph from the Chromax, he described it as a tribal dance in HR, being the tribe leader yeah. and going around just to ev in everyone's face. It was just, it was an amazing set. Yeah. That's what all they said. There's like, this changed everything. This led this whole, the whole New York, emerging New York hardcore scene to happen because of the bad brains coming to New York, which is amazing. And so right when they finished uh, that set and 15 or so people had to be peeled from the ceiling, <laughs> John and Mike wrote down their phone numbers and handed them to Adam Yauch. And from then on, they became close friends, hanging out every single weekend and becoming part of a clique, of course. You know, there's a group of friends from then on. Mike D, Adam Yauch, John Barry, Jeremy Shatton, Kate Schellenbeck, her friends, the bag ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how they start their own scene. You know, we talk about this with the Ramones and the Misfits. The scene starts with the friends you make and then it extends further and further until it becomes history. And it's on a podcast. <laughs> or so they say. Or so they say. <laughs> yes, apparently that show, December 26th, December 27th, uh, it, it was apparently a very packed house and everyone was there and John Barry didn't go with Mike D. He was actually on stage playing with Even Worse and, and Jack Rabbit and, uh, because they were opening for the Bad Brains. Yeah. So I'm sure they probably, for the narrative, they probably just picked a really important show. Of course. And and they went with it. But, uh, but whatever, we print the legend, right? Yeah, we print the legend. Right. Now, Adam Yauch didn't join Mike D in any sort of creative endeavor just yet. They were still just friends. But going off of the Bad Brains show... Mike D's band, the Young Aborigines, began moving ever closer to hardcore. The clincher, however, came on March 14, 1981. It was on that day that Black Flag played their first ever East Coast show at the Peppermint Lounge in New York City. This show, hailed as one of the greatest punk rock shows in history, ended up being the hardcore equivalent to the so-called gig that changed the world played by the Sex Pistols in Manchester in 1976. Yeah, no, you, I guess you can consider this, this is the gig that changed the New York scene dance floors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going from like, ah, oh, quit pushing to I will destroy you with my slam dancing and beat you into submission. I'll fucking kill yeah. you. <laughs> for better, for worse. For better, for worse. Yes. So this is- For worse, it's for worse. <laughs> <laughs> really depends who you ask. <laughs> yeah, yes. Me, it's for worse. <laughs> this is around the time where th there was this weird DC, uh, maybe it wasn't so weird, but there was this DC versus New York hardcore feud that began because, according to the punks in Washington, DC, the New York punk kids are pussies and can't handle the real shit, mm -hmm. while the New York punk kids were like 
DC. More like dicks and cuts. (laughs) (laughs) That was funny. (laughs) Thinking they're so hard, you know, all that stuff. Because they considered them, the DC people, more like annoying frat boys from the suburbs. Well, they were. I mean, not necessarily frat boys, but they were suburbs kids. It was suburbs kids versus uh, city kids. Yes, exactly. So DC and New York, you know, they're exchanging words by fanzines. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's some weird feud. And this is all happening in a Black Flag show in New York City. Who And Black Flag, funny enough, are from California. Yeah, they're totally <laughs> off the other side of the fucking country. <laughs> where hardcore was at, you know, it's like where, you know, Black Flag and Dead Kennedys. Like, they're all in California and fucking New York and D.C. Like, <laughs> you know, the teen idols and everything. But it was just like. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the reason why this is happening, why there's this weird feud going on in the Black Flag show in New York City is because a big number of the D.C. punks drove to New York City to see Black Flag play because just like Mike D and Adam Yauch, they were inspired by Black Flag's nervous breakdown EP. So them and about a thousand other people at that time yeah. know this. And so this is like the genesis of hardcore. This is where we're getting to it. Mm-hmm. So Mike D, Adam Yauch, John Barry, Kate, and the other bag ladies, they're all standing there at the show. And remember, they're about 15, 16 years old. They're much younger compared to these guys. And when Black Flag comes on, it gets very intense. Like they played a 20 song set yeah. in 45 minutes. <laughs> all fast, all loud, all abrasive and, and very short and abrupt. Of course, one hardcore song after another. Fast loud short the whole show was amazing and terrifying why because it got violent got really of of course it got violent (laughs) really violent really fast yes so the dc punks start slam dancing and pushing each other around aggressively and climbing on the stage and jumping to the crowd and they're really like elbowing people everywhere they're very rough and this obviously is going to create some fights yeah because people are not realizing like this is not pokoing yeah this is real shit and this is the first time new yorkers are seeing like this kind of aggressive uh, dancing yeah if you want to call it that and so while this is happening mike and adam their whole group are against the back wall like scared little children because they were yeah <laughs> and they were just well just the whole like everyone just screaming and the Fights starting happening. They're just in the back, like pressed against the wall, but like, ah! <laughs> oh god! And Black Flag's like, I'm gonna rise above. I'm gonna rise above. And they're like, ah! <laughs> I've never seen this before. Who are these people? <laughs> well, two of those DC punks were 19-year-old Ian Mackay from Minor Threat and 20-year-old Henry Rollins from SOA, State of Alert, and manager of Hagen Dazs Ice Cream Store. Close due to shovel. We all know close to shovel. Yeah. <laughs> they drove. Four Four hours to see Black Flag live in New York City, even though Black Flag were going to play in D.C. in their hometown a few days later, but figured let's see them as many times as we can. Yeah. Which worked out in the long run, obviously, because when three months later, Black Flag needed a new lead singer, Henry Rollins joined them as their lead singer from then on until 1985. Yep. And tell about them. Now, the thing about this Black Flag show is that even though it was in some ways the beginning of the New York hardcore scene, it was also the beginning of the end for the artier New York punk scene. This is moving from second wave into hardcore. See, as far as the dancing went, you know, like you said, the most the New York kids would do is some light pogoing. They're just jumping up and down. Fucking hardcore kids are coming in, throwing elbows and fucking people up. Imagine getting punched in the face (laughs) and you call that a dance. Yeah, well, that's what Jack Rabbit told us that he was at this show, but he was watching it from the balcony and watching all this shit going down. All the the fights breaking out. All the fights breaking out. And he thought to himself, man, they're missing a fucking great show. (laughs) They're not even paying attention to the actual fucking show. In other words, this was the beginning of New York moving from the arty experimentation of Richard Hell, the Talking Heads, the Ramones, 
into the violent and rigid New York hardcore scene to come. And as such, the arty kids started moving away from punk, and the Beastie Boys would eventually follow. But there were still artsy people there. Thurston Moore was at this fucking show, and he'd go on to form Sonic Youth. And as far as the Beastie Boys went, the Black Flag show was attended not only by Mike D and MCA, but also Adam Horowitz, soon to be known as Ad-Rock. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> That's the one. Yeah, I mean, to, to kind of, I guess to put it into perspective, as far as the Beastie Boys go, like, remember, just think about it, high, mid, low. You know, Ad-Rock's high. Yeah! You know, Mike D is right in the middle, and Adam Yauch is the lowest voice of all. Now, Adam Horowitz was the youngest of three kids, born in 1966 and raised in downtown Manhattan's West Village. Like the others... Horowitz was raised in a bohemian-type environment because his mother owned a West Village vintage clothing store. Holy shit, that's hard to say. West Village vintage clothing store called G the Kids Need Clothes. That's clever. That's very clever. And his father was a playwright, producer, and screenwriter named Israel Horowitz. However, his parents divorced when Adam was three, and he was mostly raised by his mother. As far as music influences went when Adam was growing up, he, like a lot of us, got into music through his older brother, who used to take him to a record store called Crazy Eddie's yeah. to buy 45s. <laughs> For his 12th birthday, Adam's mom and her friends bought him a guitar. And amazingly, he actually took lessons from Laurie Anderson's sister. And Laurie Anderson, of course, was the avant-garde musician responsible for serial killer Dennis Nilsson's favorite song, Oh, Superman. <laughs> Fucking love that song. Oh, Superman. Okay. Now, Did anyone get the old Superman bingo card? <laughs> because I can't believe you got it all the way I there. I got it all that, the way. It's I, amazing. I, I, I found a way to mention Oh, Superman again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Now, Ad-Rock's first big musical influence when he was a kid was Kiss. But Carolina uncovered an odd and infinitely more interesting influence from 1975 that featured what could be considered primitive sampling and sound collage, spoken of by Ad-Rock on a podcast he did for Apple Music. Now, according to Ad-Rock, the song by novelty musician Dickie Goodman influenced the early Beastie Boys track Cookie Puss. And as <laughs> Can you believe it? Some guy who probably is like, you know, killing at the cat skills or something. <laughs> because Dickie of Goodman. you, we have the Beastie Boys. <laughs> <laughs> and as we'll get into next episode, Cookie Puss was the song that propelled the Beastie Boys into the world of hip hop. The original inspiration, though, was called Mr. Jaws. We are here on the beach where a giant shark has just eaten a girl swimmer. Well, Mr. Jaws, how was it? Darn, oh my! And what did she say when you grabbed her? Please, Mr. Please. I know sharks are stupid, but what did you think when you took that first bite? How sweet it is. Mr. Jaws, before you swim out to sea, have you anything else to say? is the local sheriff. Sheriff Brody, the shark will be back for lunch. What do you intend to do? Just arriving is oceanographer Matt Hooper. Sir, if someone is attacked by a shark, what should they do? We are going aboard the fishing boat of Captain Quint. Captain, will you be able to catch this giant shark? Thank you, Captain. And so on and so forth. <laughs> I think that was staged. Not a real interview. Deep fakes are amongst us already. They've been around since 1975, man. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. So inspired by the Black Flag show, 
Adam Horowitz, soon to be Ad-Rock, started his own hardcore band called The Young and the Useless with his childhood friend, Dave Skilkin. This is a clip of them live at CBGB's when Horowitz was just 16 years old. And this is him on guitar, not singing. And they're playing uh, I, what sounds like about the 11 people. <laughs> <laughs> hey, good for them. Good for them. <laughs> Is the song over? Yeah. You just hear clap. three people go, Please clap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, they're pretty good, though. They were pretty good. <laughs> they band. were pretty good. Yeah, yeah. it was a, not bad for a bunch of 16 year olds. Now, at the same time that Adam Horowitz was playing with the young and the useless, Adam Yauk, soon to be MCA, was hanging out more and more with Mike D's band, the Young Aborigines. Yeah, because Adam Yauk, he really wanted to get into music, obviously. So now he had these friends who were in a band. So he'd hang out at rehearsals and sometimes he'd bring his bass that he got from his parents who made him promise he'll play it and not let it go to waste. Mm -hmm. Of course, that, you know, that thing that when your parents are like, OK, only if you use this. Yeah, only if you of... use it every day and feed it and walk it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he did what he was told. And he spent a good chunk of time playing along with John Barry or having Kate show him how to play a public image song. Uh, sometimes they would skip school for this yeah. because it was what what they wanted to do. So after a while, you know, what would usually happen during the young Aborigines rehearsals is that Jeremy, you know, the bassist, he would go home after rehearsal because, you know, he'd be done with the day. And so Adam, he would step in and encourage them to play like more hardcore type music that they've been listening to, like Bad Brains and Minor Threat. So how they would shift it is that Adam would play, he would pick up the bass and Kate would play Mike's drums and John Barry would stay on guitar which led to Mike D, the shyest one of them all, to step up and be the front man and sing. <laughs> and this is all just messing around and having fun with your friends, of course, making up songs on the spot about each other or, or the bodega downstairs. It's all in good fun. They're just really just, just messing around. Yeah, it's just fucking around, but it led to something gigantic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so after months of fucking around, the young Aborigines played their first and only two shows on the same day in June of 1981 one of which was held at the epicenter of New York hardcore. That place was 171A. That's right, 171A. Right? It was run by Jerry Williams. He was this guy who came up from North Carolina to New York City to rent a space for his band, The Cigarettes. Uh, it, was a, it was a cute little band he had in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. They would write songs about cancer and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so Jerry Williams, so yeah, he rented a rehearsal space and, and, and also he actually built a loft to uh, record in. You know? and, and this place, 171A, actually ended up being a huge community center for the hardcore community. No. <laughs> the hardcore kids. <laughs> yes. For like, oh, the kids. For like bands like Bad Brains and the Stimulators and soon enough, you know, later the Cro-Mags and the Reagan Youth and Murphy's Law, the Young and the Useless, of course, among many, many others. Yeah. So 171A was in downtown Manhattan on Avenue A, hence 171A. It was the, the address. address the yeah. <laughs> and this is around the end of 1980 into 1981. And this is a place for bands, like I said, to rehearse in and to record, you know, with, with the sound booth and record 
recording studio that he had upstairs in the little area. And of course, sometimes they put on little weekend shows, you know, while they were rehearsing kind of, you know, like, <laughs> but then the fire department would shut that down for selling liquor without a license because they also had a bar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Jerry was like, okay, guys, all right, this is more like a rehearsal space where we record sometimes, you know, you guys can, yes, yeah, sure, you can rehearse here. Sure, you can bring your friends to watch if you want. Sure, they can bring their own beer. Yeah, I guess we should charge cover too and turn on the, yes, okay, damn it, we're in a legal nightclub again. <laughs> Open the bar. What a slippery slope that is. But no, really, it was just a hangout spot yeah. and uh, where, where they had a lot of fun. Like, Bad Brains would be doing shows there and the fire department would come in and be like, what's going on? And why is there only 16 of you? It's much louder than I thought it would be. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, this is where the young Aborigines were going to play for the first time. And then later that night, they had another gig. So they're starting off, you know, their first gig with two shows on the same night. Mm -hmm. So this is the first one was at 171A. Young Aborigines go on stage. They do their instrumental set. It's going pretty well. And after every song, you know, someone in the audience, supportively, I guess, yells, that was nice. <laughs> after every song. Nice. That was nice. <laughs> like, it, it wasn't like, oh, that's nice. Like, it was more like. Nice. nice. That was nice. <laughs> and then the young Aborigines. What an asshole. I know. <laughs> and then they ran over to the warehouse or second set that they were playing with UXA. And that set went actually very well, too. Like people came up and they danced to their music, which like it looked very promising. Like yeah. they were very happy with the outcome of the night. They got home at 5 a.m. and were like, OK, now we got to go to school. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, the young Aborigines just sort of faded away. You know, like Jeremy Shatton, he just decided he wasn't really into hardcore anymore, which I get. Right. Um, yeah. They played, you know, and then, yeah, I guess it kind of lost its luster after a while. Yeah. I mean, I get because there were a lot of people that were just like the as the New York hardcore scene was growing, you know, and turning into bands like, you know, Agnostic Front and Crow Mags and all that. As that was growing, people were starting to peel away because there were more people like, ah, this isn't for me. This isn't, this just isn't really my scene. And Jeremy Shatton was one of those it's, people. It's getting very specific. It's getting very specific and very rigid. Right. And after Jeremy Shatton left, Adam Yauch, who again and again would be the driving force of the band, he jumped in and pushed the other members further in to hardcore. That's right. Like I said, like he would be coming in after rehearsal. So there was a bit of an overlap. Yeah. And even though they really only traded one member for another, the band decided they needed a new name. And that would end up being the name they'd carry for the next 30 years. That was when they decided to become the Beastie Boys. Oh, B A S T I go. B A S T I. That's what we gotta be. Can you see the mercy? Can you feel it? B A S T I. B A S T I. With rules of policy. Yes, 
that they call themselves the Beastie Boys, but that's not exactly how it happened. <laughs> they didn't like climb up a mountain in, in hoods and robes to have like an old guru man anoint them the Beastie Boys. It was, it, I mean, because remember, they're kids. They're, they're, kids, ha- they're yeah. hanging out. They're they're having fun. They're they're the young Aborigines is still kind of a thing because it overlaps with Beastie Boys being a fun side project that eventually yeah. takes over. Of course, the oldest one of them is sixteen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're having fun with it. You know, that's, yeah. I mean, in the name, the Beastie Boys was supposed to just be another goofy name that they come up with. You know, they came up with a lot of goofy names. Uh, band, uh, Triple Slide Crew. Like, they, they like to make buttons. They like to make homemade buttons of their, and they would put like their favorite bands on there or their made up band names on there, like the Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys actually originating from a button because mm-hmm. they thought it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And so John Barry, he said he came up with the name one day when they were all hanging out together and he was thinking like, well, we're a group of friends, you know, like a gang or like an Elks Lodge kind of thing. And, and you know, we need uh, secret handshakes and all kinds of, maybe we are climbing a mountain <laughs> in ropes. <laughs> and John Barry said it was, you know, and this is just to make themselves laugh. And this is to annoy everyone else because that's what you are when you're a fun, bratty 16 year old. Yep. And so later on they came up with the acronym for BC uh, being boys entering anarchistic states toward internal excellence boys boys <laughs> there's already boys in there so Sorry, it really already didn't make twice, sense yeah. it's a ridiculous name it's, yes it's another ridiculous thing to add to their ridiculous name mm-hmm. I like the name obviously because I know them that way it's the perfect name yeah, for them I it, know them as the Beastie Boys yeah but they still think to this day 40 years later it's a stupid name. It was a joke. The whole point, but the, that was the whole point. It was just supposed to be a joke. It was supposed to be for fun. And now it's inscribed in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame forever. There's a playground in Brooklyn named for Adam Yauch. Like, yes. It's fucking crazy. That's it. It's in history now. Yep. <laughs> be careful what kind of jokes you make when you're 15. And so, with a more focused lineup and a new name, the Beastie Boys recorded a demo with a borrowed Tascam Porta Studio 4 track, which at the time the fucking Porta Studio was a revolutionary piece of gear. See, before things like the Porta Studio, recording anything with more than a single track required a reel-to-reel recorder, a mixing desk, and the know-how to put it all together. And you also had to have some sort of studio environment in which to do it. But with the Porta Studio, bands could record demos wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted, using nothing more than a blank cassette tape that cost about three bucks. In the words of Mike Diamond, the Porta Studio democratized the recording process in a way that's hard to overstate, and bands like the Beastie Boys took full advantage. Now, the demo they ended up recording immediately got attention, and they started getting play on a hardcore radio show called Noise the Show on NYU's college radio station. And these demos were later released on a Beastie Boys compilation called Some Old Bullshit, complete with the introduction from NYU DJ... Tim Summer. Tim Summer. This is another noise show. Stay tuned, folks. It's a really good show. We got giveaways. We got guests. And of course, we've got half an hour of the best hardcore in New York, starting with the Beastie Boys.
This is always the song they play when they do like a weird documentary about the Beast Boys. The Beastie Boys began in New York City. <laughs> it's always the song. <laughs> but the thing to remember about the Beastie Boys at this point in their history was that all of them were still not only in high school, but barely in the second half of high school. <laughs> They're getting there. Their age, however, wasn't really an impediment to them being a part of the hardcore scene. See, it wasn't until 1984 that the legal drinking age in America was raised to 21. And since New York was about as lawless as it ever got in the 20th century, pretty much any kid could get into a punk club if they had enough money for a fake ID, overly permissive parents, and the requisite amount of swagger. And these were things that all of the Beastie Boys had in great supply. Or you show up early and you have lunch there <laughs> and then the show goes on and you're already inside. I've done this once or twice. At the beginning of the band that was the Beastie Boys, the oldest member was Adam Yauch. Remember, Adam Yauch becomes MCA. He was just 16 years old. And it was, in fact, Yauch's 17th birthday party that the Beastie Boys played their first show. That's so smart. If you want to put on a show, a good way to have a decent sized crowd, make it your birthday show. Absolutely. Yes. Then people have to come. Yes. And this was Adam Yauch's idea, too. He's yeah. like, you know what? We're the Beastie Boys now. Sorry, guys. That's who we are. Why don't we have a gig? Why don't we just do it here in John Barry's apartment where we rehearse and we'll have a birthday party. You know, we'll invite everyone. Our equipment's here. It'll be really great. So August 5th, 1981. The new Beastie Boys invited all their friends and acquaintances and packed the uptown loft with two dozen teenage kids drinking beer and hanging out. <laughs> this sounds like paradise <laughs> to like sophomore me. You know? Yeah. And they also showed like Super 8 films that they'd made and they had TVs everywhere. And later we'll go on to how much they use electronics and Adam Yauch's tech skills, you know, as a way to expand their music and performance. But they started at the very first show. My God. Yes. Now, I can imagine 16-year-old me going, there's more people in this room than in my entire high school class. <laughs> this <laughs> is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so they're at the party. They're having a good time. After a few beers, they finally get the courage. Okay, it's time for the gig, everyone. <laughs> so they push John Barry's bed against the wall to make some space for a dance floor. And they get up and they start playing the few songs they already knew. Remember, not many. Yeah. And remember, this new band, the Beastie Boys band, is Kate Schellenbach on drums, Adam Yauch on bass, John Barry on guitar, and Mike D, who kind of defaulted to being the lead singer. Yeah, even though he's the shyest one in the entire group. Yes, and this is Mike D's first time performing as a frontman. You know, because Mike, being this incredibly shy kid at the time, it, it was really hard for him to do something like this. Luckily, there was beer. Yeah. Yes, which he, apparently, according to everyone else, it was the first time he ever got drunk in his whole life. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, because it's hard. It's hard to put on a performance for the first time in front of all your friends. And all your friends are 16-year-olds, and you're all ragging on each other all the time. It's got to be difficult. It's, Especially fucking New York kids. Yes. Ooh. I mean, you're living dangerously up there. You know, you you are a target. But, yeah. you know, he did great. He did great. They made it through the set. They only stopped a couple times from losing their place or, you know, forgetting a part, which can happen. But they made it through. Mm -hmm. And after the show, this guy... Dave Parsons comes up to them and says, you guys have some decent punk songs. I'd like to record them for my new record company that I am just making up as I'm saying this sentence. 
<laughs> because that's what Dave Parsons was doing. Okay, now Dave Parsons, he is very instrumental to the Beastie Boys history, yeah. as well as the early New York hardcore scene. Yeah. So Dave, he was a little bit older than the crowd there because there were a bunch of teenagers having beer. Mm -hmm. Dave, he had come from Florida where he was uh, writing a fanzine called uh, Mouth of the Rat because mm -hmm. he was from Boca Raton. That makes sense. Yeah. And so Dave and his girlfriend, Kathy. They Why does that make sense? Because in Spanish, <laughs> Boca, you know, you know. <laughs> You've lived with me long enough. Yeah, but maybe perhaps for our listeners who do not have a bilingual wife. Mouth of the Rat, Boca Raton. Boca Raton being the Spanish direct literal translation ah, of Mouth of the Rat. Got it. Okay, cool. And that was the punk fanzine that Dave Parsons put together in Florida. He moved to New York mm -hmm. with his fanzine yeah. and his girlfriend, Kathy. And instead of, you know, they moved to the village and instead of getting a job to pay rent, they figured, why don't we just put out a blanket out here on the sidewalk when sell some records. And they actually did really great, you know, selling their used records. So soon enough, Dave opened up his first record store called Rat Cage Records in the basement of 171A, which was perfect because he was wanting to start a record label. So why not have your store be underneath a recording studio where you're friends <laughs> with the guy who's running that store? Hey, Jerry, hi, hi, Dave, <laughs> kind of thing. They're all a community. Oh, man, it's perfect. Man, I mean, New York City used to be full of places like this. Like, I remember there was one of the weirdest record stores in New York was in the East Village that was opened years ago, where upstairs was a, a full, only sold reggae records. And then you walk down this really fucking like narrow stair. It wasn't even a stairway. It was like a narrow ladder that was very dangerous and you went down there and it was this tiny room that only sold black metal records. Wow. <laughs> it was fucking crazy. I love that place. It was so fucking... But yeah, New York used to be full of shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, before the Beastie Boys ever recorded an EP with Dave Parsons, they began playing regular gigs around New York City. And one of those was at a hardcore venue called The Playhouse. At that show, HR, the sometimes controversial lead singer of DC Hardcore Trailblazers Bad Brains, happened to be in the crowd, and he fucking loved the Beastie Boys when he saw him. See, at this point in time, Bad Brains had pretty much become a New York hardcore band out of circumstance rather than choice, which completely runs contrary to the legend of Bad Brains being, quote, banned in DC, as this song says. <laughs> good fast and they're good when they play kind of slower too no yeah no they know how to do fucking everything yes they're just a fantastic punk band yes so yeah, yeah. bad brains from yeah. washington dc you know they've been playing at bars and venues and it actually it was there in dc where they opened for the damned when the damned came to america yeah so, i mean that, that's I mean, that, there's one thing that we've proved over the, the both this episode and all throughout our first season was that the importance of the damned to american punk 
can't be overstated. Right. <laughs> the damned are much more important to American punk than the fucking Sex Pistols ever were. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they, they landed and they actually made some friendships and they did really great shows and they didn't fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> so the damned, they loved the Bad Brains and they said, come to England and we can help produce an album for you guys. You guys are great. And the Bad Brains, were they immediately jumped on this. Yeah. So they pulled their money together. Earl Hudson actually said he'd sold his drums to Dave Hahn, the drummer for the Mad. Remember mm-hmm. the Mad Band? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they also asked their friends for like loans, like just throw some cash at us, please. <laughs> you know, anything to get to England to pay for their plane tickets to get to record their first album. And with a huge band like the Damned. Yeah. That's awesome. So Bad Brains, they fly over to London and they get stopped at customs where one of the agents found an empty vial uh, and the agent's looking at it like, oh, what is this? What is there drugs in this? And the guy's like, no, there used to be drugs in this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, also, they didn't think to get work visas. Uh, yeah. I mean, and they even try to go into London being like, oh, yes, we're touring. I mean, we're tourists. <laughs> uh, damn it. Well, I, that's also kind of on the damn to be like, you got to get work visas. You got to do this. You got to do that. I mean, I remember didn't know- what happened with the misfits. Yeah. They forgot <laughs> that. Imagine inviting someone over to go across an ocean yeah. and be like, crap. I forgot I make drunk plans. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, hell, I didn't even know when we went and fucking played England for the first time with last podcast. Like, I, I didn't know we needed work visas. That was entirely, if they hadn't told me, I wouldn't have fucking done it. Like, you got, <laughs> you you gotta, showed up. Yeah, and- I would have just showed up and be like, I'm here to do a show. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so somebody should have told, I, I'm not going to put that out. Yeah, the vial, I'll put that on bad brains. But the work visas, that's not their but fault. But they show up in all like their punk rock gear, you yeah. know, their spray painted zoot suits. <laughs> It's kind of hard to miss them. Of course, they're going to be questioned a little bit. Yeah. And they didn't have any money on them either. Yeah. So so Nick Martin actually said that Captain Sensible went down there to Heathrow while Bad Brains were being detained. And Captain Sensible is like waving money around saying like, we're sponsoring these guys. They're going to live with us. It will be on us. <laughs> Captain Sensible, a guy with a tutu. Yeah. Yes. A tutu and a beret you're and gonna, a striped shirt. You're going to give them the responsibility of grown men from DC. I, I don't know. So so the custom agents at Heathrow Airport, they put the bad brains on a plane back to New York and uh, didn't even give them their passports until they landed back in America. And and somehow during that whole commotion, they'd lost two customized guitars from the baggage claim. (sighs) So, yeah. So the bad brains, they were in New York City. They were broke with no musical instruments. So they had to borrow them. The band had to live off playing these hole in the wall gigs, you know, eating every other day. They stuck around New York and luckily their friends like the stimulators and the mad help them out with a place to stay and you know they, they lend them instruments for for shows uh earl hudson who sold his drum kit to dave Hahn, the mad's drummer you know when they got sent back dave was like you can come over and stay at my place and all while earl had to just sleep on the floor staring at his drum kit <laughs> that's no longer his and dave is like no that's still good that's still mine <laughs> <laughs> and of course, later they stayed upstairs of 171A where they finally got to record their first album on Roar Records. They debuted Bad Brains. So they finally did it. And the, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. They weren't, the story is that they were banned in DC, but they weren't so much banned in DC as they were broke in New York. They, were, yeah. like they just couldn't afford to go back to DC. And I don't know, for, maybe I'm wrong here, but for me, like this story, the real story where, you know, they have this, you know, huge failure and uh, going to London they come back and 
they have to work their way up from the absolute fucking bottom. They are starting with absolutely nothing and they work their way back up to make one of the best hardcore albums ever recorded. One of the best punk albums yeah. ever recorded. To me, that's such a better story than they didn't let play in DC anymore. <laughs> and they also got help from the community. They got help from the community. It's yeah. all about survival. It's a, Yeah, it's about survival. It's about help from the community. And that's the thing about the New York hardcore scene is that really the New York hardcore scene was about survival for a lot of people. You know, we talk about it moving from something artier into something else. Part of the reason why it did move into something else because a lot of the people that made up the hardcore scene were living on the very fucking edge of existence. Like, these were people that were trying to survive. These were people that were in Alphabet City that were barely making if they had anywhere to live at all like they are dying out there it's very fucking rough it's very fucking hard and of course the hardcore scene reflected that it reflected the fuck you i'm still here attitude and uh, that you know there's not a lot of room for art in that i guess no, not always. Sometimes it kind of loses its uh, its sense of humor. Yeah. I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, because life was shit <laughs> yeah. for a lot of people in the hardcore scene. But through this one weird little quirk of fate, Bad Brains became a part of the New York hardcore fabric. And it was after seeing the Beastie Boys at the playroom that HR asked the Beasties to open for Bad Brains at legendary New York City venue, Maxis, Kansas City. Sorry, we're closed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was the fucking last show at Max's Kansas yeah, City. before the, they shut down. The very last show at Max. I mean, Max's Kansas City, one of the, I mean, it's up there with CBGB as far as like being just a legendary venue. We talked about it so much in season one. The last show at Max's Kansas City was Bad Brains and the Beastie Boys. But the show sucked for the Beastie Boys. <laughs> <laughs> it fucking sucked for them. They only played three songs and no one really cared. And they naively left their equipment at Max's overnight only to discover the next day that all of it had been stolen. However, the show at Max's and another show opening for hardcore mainstays, Reagan Youth, gave the Beasties enough juice to rocket themselves through the New York hardcore scene. And they started playing more and more shows with more and more bands. And eventually... The Beastie Boys, which at this time contained Mike D and Adam Yauch, they began playing shows with Ad-Rock's band, The Young and the Useless, that Ad-Rock being Adam Horowitz. However, even though things were going well, the Beastie Boys were still, after all, just kids. And as kids are wont to do, they lost interest. With Mike D saying bluntly that the concept just didn't seem funny anymore. But Dave Parsons at Ratcage Records was persistent in his belief that they needed to record. So he convinced Mike Diamond, Adam Yauk, Kate Schellenbach, and John Barry to reform and record what would become their first EP, Pollywog Stew.
So, you know, that's a real story. Yeah. Egg Raid on Mojo. Mojo's a guy. Yes, Mojo's a guy. He was a guy who would hang around the scene and eventually got hired to be a bouncer or a doorman for a lot of after hours clubs like Berlin and stuff around the city. And so the Beastie Boys were like, oh, we know Mojo. This is great. Now we can get in and we can get in for free and all this stuff. We got a nice hookup and they go and Mojo's like, no dice. <laughs> no <laughs> dice. Fuck you. No. Yeah. <laughs> You're a bunch of children. Yeah. Like, pay me. Pay me. <laughs> and so the Beastie Boys, of course, they got really upset. So they decided that... Ambush Mojo and pelt him with eggs and then run away. Ah. <laughs> Kate Schellenbeck said that there was no egg raid ever. <laughs> that that's not true. And also, apparently, according to Nick Martin and Jack Rabbit, Mojo has a very different version from that story, <laughs> meaning it pretty much doesn't even exist. Yeah, and, and Mojo is actually a DJ. And, um, you know, when things open up again, uh, hopefully he'll be DJing uh, around the city. DJ Mojo. Yeah. Look him up. I want to go and I want to dance to one of his parties. For I'd sure. love to. That sounds fucking great. But even though the music was pretty solid for the scene, the Beastie Boys broke up for a second time after its release. But once again, the Beasties were saved by a little attention when two songs from Pollywog Stew ended up on the legendary New York thrash compilation with other bands like Bad Brains, Heart Attack, Even Worse, Kraut, and The Undead, the catchiest band of the bunch. Remember, he started that as soon as he got kicked out of the Misfits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fucking great. Bam. But, you know, after the Beastie Boys were on this New York thrash compilation, like they're like, this is it. We're a band. We're here. But they were about to go through one more lineup change. Well, I guess they had one more lineup change after this, but they're <laughs> their second to last lineup change. <laughs> penultimate. The penult that's There you go. The penultimate lineup change uh, in which one member would leave and one permanent member of the Beastie Boys would come in. Yeah, this was sometime after Pollywalk Stew came out and John Barry, he started missing rehearsals. He was hanging out with other friends, you know, partying maybe a little too much, kind of drifting apart from the Beastie Boys. Mm -hmm. So eventually it was decided that John Barry would step down and Adam Horowitz would step in. Yeah. So, because Adam, he already knew the songs from opening for them for, you know, the handful of shows that they did together, The Young and the Useless and the Beastie Boys. They've been friends. They've been hanging out. I mean, The Young and the Useless had covered songs from the Pollywog Stew EP. He knew the material. They were good friends. They met, I, I think, at a Circle Jerks concert. Uh, so they already been part of this clique for a while. It made sense. So yeah. the next phase of the Beastie Boys is Kate Schellenbach on drums, Adam Yauch on bass, Adam Horowitz on guitar, and Mike D still really shy <laughs> and singing to the floor. But, you know, he's doing the best he can, man. Yeah, he is. 
Now, the Beastie Boys' place in the hardcore scene is a little wobbly because, as I said, the hardcore scene was mostly populated by people living on the very edge of existence in New York City. These were people who were barely surviving. By contrast, the Beastie Boys were all high school kids who came from, at their poorest, upper middle class backgrounds. But this is part of the beauty of New York City, and it's part of what made the Beastie Boys the band that they became. See, as the concept goes, New York City was and still is the town where millionaires ride the train right next to the homeless. And here in New York, where me and Carolina have lived for about 15 years now, you can't help but constantly interact with every other New Yorker. And we also have no choice but to get along to a certain extent. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, we're always together so often that we can also be ourselves. So, yes, we get along because we have to get along to get along. <laughs> <laughs> but once in a while, you get a, hey, fuck you, buddy, you know, because that's New York. You got to get it out every once in a while. And so they, they say, you know, everyone says New Yorkers are rude. It's like, no, New no. Yorkers are the nicest people on earth. They're just fucking honest. Yes. Because you got to be. They're tired of tourists <laughs> ruining and stopping in the Middle, we, we I don't mind them. I think they're fine. Oh. <laughs> That's for another show. That's for another show entirely. But as such, the ideas that people had and the art that people made in New York was constantly being consumed and interpreted by other New Yorkers, regardless of socioeconomic status. If you rode the train, you were exposed to the art that was coming from uptown. You were exposed to Fab Five Freddy's art just by virtue of living in New York City. Back in the early 80s, all of this was even more meaningful because lacking the instant globalization of art that's commonplace today, all of this art developed locally and it stayed local for years. Case in point was that by 1982, hip hop had been developing in the Bronx, Brooklyn and Queens for almost a decade. And yet live hip hop still hadn't really made its way across the water to downtown Manhattan. Now, I'm sure the scholars of hip-hop listening right now are all screaming DJ Hollywood. And it is true that DJ Hollywood, one of the fathers of hip-hop, had been performing a version of hip-hop in the discos downtown since like the mid-70s or so. But the people that heard DJ Hollywood's music, that was the suit and cocaine crowd. And for most of them, DJ Hollywood was little more than the background to a good time. Yeah, it was part of it. It wasn't like a show. No, it, it was just uh, the entertainment, I guess you could say. Exactly. A hired gun. In other words, the kids weren't hearing it. And if the kids don't hear it, then what's the fucking point? See, as it's been proved again and again, it's the kids on the ground who shift the culture when it comes to music. And nothing opens up more possibilities to a kid than seeing their own potential on stage, showing them what's possible. Well, as far as our story goes, even though it was 1982, and even though Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang and Christmas Rappin' by Curtis Blow had already been hits, there was a deeper layer to hip hop that hadn't reached beyond the outer boroughs. This hip hop wasn't done by manufacturer groups like the Sugar Hill Gang, nor was it as slick and safe as Curtis Blow. This hip hop was raw and had all the same energy as punk with all the same motivations. And soon after Ad-Rock joined the Beastie Boys, that raw shit would finally make its way downtown. Starting in 1982, legends of hip-hop like Africa Bombada and Funky 4 Plus One began playing live shows downtown because of people like Fab Five Freddy and Debbie Harry from Blondie. And these groups would change everything about what the Beastie Boys thought possible. Say you ready for this? Are you ready for this? We're ready for this. Are you ready for this? 
it's a hard to steal Because the five MCs, you got to be real We want to hear the party people yell Sugar Hill So what's the deal? Sugar Hill So what's the deal? Sugar Hill Ooh, that's the joint like these first beats that we want y'all to hear We're gonna make a lot of sense We're gonna make it clear We're gonna rock this place We're gonna do some class We're gonna do our best We're gonna make it last We got drums on our minds We got rockin' in the heart And now the things we do, you can call it art People in the place got a whole lot of soul. So when we're on the mic, y'all shocking the house. And when we all get together, we can turn it out. Now we're in the house, as you can plainly see. Everybody say, get funky, get funky, and make money, and make money, and you don't stop. Give it to us now. Oh man, I hope yeah. you're listening to this while you're walking, because you're not walking anymore, you're dancing. <laughs> Oh yeah, man. Just put on That's the Joint and take a 10 minute walk. And it's good because the song's nine minutes long. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's fuck that's old hip hop, man. They thought that was short. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Because hip hop was really like three hours. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. But that's what we're gonna get into in part two. Yes. That's it. With the rise of hip hop downtown and the creation of a new sound for the Beastie Boys. Woo! Wow. Can't wait to get into it. I know. It. I, yeah. uh, and, and also, I want to really thank uh, Jeremy Shatton again, his blog. Please check it out, anearful.blogspot.com. And Jack Rabbit, thank you so much for helping me out. Uh, check out thebigtakeover.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sell their issues there. You, you can sign up. And you, do whatever you like. Check it out. I'm doing that right now. I'm doing that today. Oh, yeah. And, and Nick Martin, thank you so much. He was so nice on the phone talking to me. So check out the stimulators on Bandcamp. I think I picked up their last t-shirt, <laughs> Loud Fast Rules. So <laughs> Now they're out of stock because I bought the last one in XXXL <laughs> and just cut it halfway through. And I was like, okay, that's like a thing. It looks great. Yeah. Well, thank you. So, but thank you. They're really great. So I really appreciate these guys talking to me and just telling me like just the whole scene and the, just everything, just the feeling of, of what it was like. New York City, 1980. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank you. Uh, thanks to all three of those guys uh, for talking to us. We really very, very much appreciate it. And this is uh, this here, this Beastie Boy series. Like this is going to be five parts. Uh, each one is going to be about this long, yeah. if not, <laughs> if not longer, because there's a lot to cover. Because you know, throughout this series, we're going to get to go through the rise of hip hop. We're going to get to go through Def Jam. We're going to get to go through you know so many different nineties and then the nineties boutique. Yeah, we get to go through. You know, we're we're going to get into like you know alternative rock. You yes. know, like like it's gonna the Beastie Boys really did. They really were a big part of so many scenes. Uh, and such an important part. Uh, and uh, we're just, you know, they're a part of American culture now. Yeah. Uh, they are very important to American culture. Uh, and uh, we love them. And like, they're, we, from <laughs> they're from New they're York. They're from New York. from New York. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening. Uh, if you uh, want to follow us on uh, Instagram to find out like when new episodes come out, we're going to be back in two weeks with part two. Episodes come out every two weeks. Yeah, uh, but if no you, dogs pod, no dogs pod, uh, and also you know we post some cool stuff. You know bands yeah. that we're covering there. I'm going to post a couple whiteboards of uh, that I put together to kind of get a good feeling of like because I couldn't wrap my head around so, like, there's so many things in the history. So if you guys want to learn along. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm yeah. now a teacher. Our process, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yes, we'll, we'll post stuff up. Uh, please check it out. And also, you know, we have a band of the week. We do. Every single week we play uh, a band uh, that uh, contains members that listen to the show here. Uh, we got so many fucking talented listeners, so many musicians that send in music to us. No dogs in space at gmail.com is a place to send stuff yeah. uh, if you've got a band. And we, of course, want to hear it. You know, we're, we're trying to listen to as many as we can. You guys are so fucking great. We uh, got a long list going. We got but, a long list but going. But yeah, I mean, you don't even have to be a band. You could just be a guy or a girl or anything just who just makes noise. Yeah. And and you record it anywhere from your home, on your computer, whatever. You want to send it to us. Uh, we would love to play it. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Thank you so much for the ones who already have sent it to us. Thank you. You guys are great. I've, I'm already fans. Yeah. <laughs> I'm already a big fan of a lot of these bands that we've been checking out. Absolutely. And the band this week is Pearly Q. They yes. are from Calgary, Alberta in Canada. I love Calgary. It's such a weird town. I, <laughs> I really I really like it. Great record stores there. Uh, but yeah, if you dig the raincoats, you dig the slits, bands like that, you're going to fucking love Pearly Q. Uh, if you want to check them out, they're on Spotify. They've also got a, a band camp if you want to go support them. Pearly Q, P-U-R-L-I-C-U-E dot bandcamp dot com and of course you know this is the best way right now to support uh bands that are uh, up and coming you know of course they can't go out and do live gigs they can't tour right now so if you want to support them go to their band camp and give them some cash for a download uh we would very much appreciate it if you did that with any live band that you particularly enjoy uh, a local band that you know or a band that you know is just getting on their feet go to their band camp Give them money. Yeah. Support your support musicians. A whole year without touring. I mean, must have been rough. So but we could still get into the scene in some way or another (laughs) by listening on Bandcamp or buying their records. Exactly. So, yeah, here is Fire by Pearly Q off of their uh, EP that came out in 2019, Dippin' Dot. Enjoy it, buddy. Uh, We'll see you all in two weeks. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.